All right. So as usual, when talking to me, I, I, I like I like history. I like context. So um, in evaluating the Arctic as a geopolitical chess piece and grand strategy, last week we talked about this map. I'd like to start with this map. This is something you guys remember. It's uh, William Gilpin's Economic Just and Correct Map of the World. Um, for those who haven't seen last week's episode, go watch it. Um, for those who have seen it, you know that this was an 1890 map, which uh, was part of a book called The Cosmopolitan Railway, where William Gilpin, Lincoln's former bodyguard, the first governor of the territory of Colorado, and leading hero uh, who's been scrubbed out of history, leading hero who largely won the Civil War by keeping the Western Front from opening up uh, to the South. He basically used Lincoln's greenbacks to uh, create self-generated credit um, through the Colorado Treasury uh, that he used to fund and pay for his military and militias that otherwise there was no means financially to pay for them in 1862. And it was through that uh, technique that he was able to grow uh, a serious militia that was able to intervene upon the opening up of a Western Front, which it's questionable whether Lincoln, even with the help of the Russians who largely turned the tide of the Civil War in 1863, when they came in with the Russian naval fleets to the Atlantic and the Pacific, even without that assistance, um, it's questionable whether Lincoln would have been able to, to stop a, a three a three-fronted war, because he already had to deal with the the uh, terrorist operations coming down from British Canada. Um, you know, that, that was something that was underway the whole time. The British were happy to let the Confederacy use Montreal, Toronto as secret uh, Confederacy headquarters, where, again, terrorist operations were run. Wilkes Booth was later deployed from Montreal to kill Lincoln. Um, he had to deal with, obviously, the South. But if he had an, a Western Front, not sure that that would have worked out. So Gilpin, was known as the prophet of Manifest Destiny. He represented not the imperial uh, Andrew Jackson Manifest Destiny that, that ran the Trail of Tears and, and is largely what why people hate Manifest... The, the word Manifest Destiny rubs people very badly and for good reason, for what a lot of the misuse of it has has justified um, throughout, you know, throughout the years, including the wars of Mexico, uh, imperial wars in the Philippines and, and more. So there's a positive manifest destiny too that people forget about. Um, and this is what Gilpin represented. So he was one of the leading founding, uh, founding fathers of the Transcontinental Railway, which he was one of the first voices to start organizing for this in the 1840s, more than 20 years before it began. His idea, uh, as well as the people working with him, was always to create a rail line that would open up the Pacific and ultimately lead to a communion of Asia and the United States as the oldest and newest civilizations. Um, it was very progressive. It was really quite something. And when it finally was built, the, the Transcontinental, in uh, 1869, it was finished, uh, the idea was to extend this through the Bering Strait. And that's what Gilpin devoted the last 35 years of his life to advancing. He says also in his writings that Lincoln supported this connection through British uh, Canada, through uh, British Columbia, which was going to become annexed to the United States after the Civil War, had not uh, certain people uh, been taken out, including the governor of British Columbia, uh, Frederick Seymour, who was probably assassinated, um, who was a friend of the, uh, the Republican cause. <clears throat> and it was going to go through Alaska, through um, the, the Bering Strait, it's a hundred kilometer gap and into Eurasia. And, and in Gilpin's works, he very clearly talks about the need to finance this through a new system of international uh, banks run by sovereign nation states that, to develop full spectrum economies. He cites Alexander Hamilton. He cites Henry Clay, 
as the uh, the role models of how this funding could work to destroy the British Empire and the unipolar system of the British Empire, which controlled only the world through choke points on seas, much like it, it works today. So just to put some faces on some of these figures, we have Ulysses S. Grant, Charles Sumner, uh, William Seward, and then on the right there is a close-up of the transcontinental railway. Um, it was always meant to have a northern line and to go up through, like I said, uh, Alaska, uh, through the West Coast. This, These are some of the American system Lincoln followers in Russia who uh, applied this method to build the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, what we have there is Tsar Alexander II, the great liberator who was known for freeing the serfs a year before Lincoln uh, declared the, the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, we have Count Sergevita, the transport minister and later prime minister of Russia. On the upper left, we have Dmitry Mendeleev, the famous chemist, who is actually the head of the uh, the uh, the protective tariff um, policy for Russia. He came to the United States and studied how America used the protective tariff against British free trade and brought that back. And there's some of his his speeches, which are still available online, where he's destroying British free trade. And this guy's known as the the discoverer of the periodic table of chemistry. Uh, but it's amazing to look at this other aspect of him as, as a patriot and a follower of the American system. Uh, <clears throat> so we have a lot. These are just a few. We, there's many more figures who used a Baldwin locomotives from Philadelphia that were used to build the the tr the, the rail cars, the tracks that was American made with American help. Um, and the idea was to always connect this through the Bering Strait. Count Sergei speaks about this. Um, there were similar allies in China later on around Sun Yat-sen who had applied the same policy for the international development of China uh, around Germany with Otto von Bismarck, um, which we talked about last week, who was going to also extend this into the uh, the Zollverein and the, the German rail system that was going to connect to the Ottoman Empire uh, that wanted to modernize at this point. It didn't have to be destroyed, but um, that required a different a different timeline of history to unfold. So <clears throat> we know that a bunch of wars, a bunch of assassinations, literally like 18 assassinations of leading figures got in the way of this throughout the late 19th century into the 20th century. Um, a, a color revolution uh, run by, you know, Warburg, J.P. Morgan connected bankers and Rothschild bankers who funded a Bolshevik revolution also got in the way where uh, Tsar Nicholas II, who was again an advocate of the Bering Strait Rail Tunnel, he even commissioned a team of of American engineers in 1906 to build, uh, to do feasibility studies on the Bering Strait. That was Tsar Nicholas II. He had some psychological problems and, and some anti-Semitic problems that caused him to make some missteps. That was that was later on an unfortunate tragedy. But when the uh, <clears throat> when when the Tsar the Tsarist system was overthrown through this color revolution, um, this was was destroyed. The the two world wars didn't help at all. And uh, it took another four decades until Henry Wallace came in. And Wallace, <clears throat> I'm setting the I'm setting the stage. I'm going to get into some some nitty meaty 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 stuff soon. But uh, for the time being, uh, Wallace brought this back. So Wallace had a good relationship with Foreign Minister Molotov. Wallace was Franklin Roosevelt's uh, vice president. Yep. And Wallace, thirty-second degree Mason. 32nd degree. Well, that's, you know what? He, de he definitely was a Mason. He was a, an admirer of theosophy. So he, he had a bit of a mystic bent. Um, but he was also a, um, a multi-generational 
farmer, an agricultural engineer, and he really did love human beings. Um, oh, so, cool. yeah, he really, really, you read his writings, you look at everything he did throughout, consistently throughout his life, he devoted himself to humanity. So he he's not, it's not so clear-cut to, to accuse someone right, of being so guilty he's by not a, he's, not a, he's not a luminist, um, crazy psychopath. He's, he's just, uh, I, I get it. In theosophy, philosophy, I got it. Yeah, like it, it's difficult to condemn everybody for being, you know, guilty by association. Um, he's right. a good example of it. Um, I, I had to go through that too, you know, like uh, you know George Washington, Marquis Lafayette, like Mozart. They're, they're all Masons as well. Does that mean everybody who's connected to Masonry is evil, or yeah. is there some nuance that I, I might be missing? And sure enough, there is nuance because there has been a battle in uh, nuance. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's a battle within Masonry as well between uh, or. I think less so today than it was back then. There was still some uh, humanist resistance um, within that utilized and operated through some Masonic lodges back then. I think largely most of that humanist resistance has been mostly squashed as far as I could see in the past 80 years. But anyway, that's another, <laughs> another show to explore that idea. But he did write in 1944 um, of his meetings with, uh, with Molotov, with Stalin, and with FDR, and the vision for a U.S.-Russia... Uh, China alliance to be the, the bedrock for the new system that was going to come online, which internationalized uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the, the same way that uh, Gilpin was trying to work to internationalize Lincoln's uh, program as well. So this quote that I took from uh, an essay he published in Survey uh, Geographic magazine, he described uh, this meeting saying, of nations, and I'm sorry, part of my thing is cut off here, of all nations, Russia has the most powerful combination of a rapidly increasing population, great natural resources, and immediate expansion, expansion in technological skills. Siberia and China will furnish the greatest frontier of tomorrow when Molotov, Russia's foreign minister, was in Washington in the spring of 1942. I spoke to him about the combined highway and airway, which I hope someday will link Chicago and Moscow via Canada, Alaska, and Siberia. Molotov, after observing that no one nation could do this job by itself, said that he and I would live to see the day of its accomplishment. It would mean much to the peace of the future if there could be some tangible link of this sort between the pioneer spirit of our own West and the frontier spirit of the Russian East. That that there's so many things that have been that he said and wrote about, and other people like uh, Harry Dexter White also. Uh, with FDR had envisioned for an anti-imperial, multipolar, win-win post-war post-war order, but um, we know that the Rhodes Scholars and other British operatives got their way instead. Roosevelt died early, probably by poisoning. We can't know because there was never an autopsy, um, and all of his allies, like Wallace, were turned into. They were labeled commie red spies. Their their careers were destroyed, and the Cold War was created when. Uh, <clears throat> When uh, Truman and Churchill, well, Churchill uh, declared the, um, you know, oh, the, the, Truman was so off base in his view of Russia and what Russia was doing in World War II. It was, it was incredible to read Truman's writing. He basically what Truman and, 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 and the guy who I who I pin as the number one problem for exceptional stand, the number the origin, the myth of exceptional stand started George Patton. And Truman's yeah. writing and Patton's writing, they are they mirror each other. Patton was an idiot. Yeah, he, he was, was a really... bloody idiot of the grandest yeah. scale. Of all the great generals mentioned, when you have the when you read the works of Europeans, Russians, and 
And anybody else that was alive during that time, the, the name Patton wasn't even mentioned. You hear of Hodges, Bradley, Montgomery. You hear of De Gaulle. You hear of everybody except Patton. You hear of Zukov. You hear of Manstein. You hear yeah. of Rommel. You hear of Guderian. Yeah. And they took this guy who was a literal nut job, who was yeah. so stupid, in fact, that he would have visions of reincarnation stating himself to be the Marshal of Napoleon. And we know how that worked out with Napoleon, didn't we, Matt? Yeah, I mean... The Marshal of Napoleon against Russia. It's crazy. He served uh, uh, some useful roles at killing Nazis um, at different times in World War II. But yeah, this guy was actually on record saying we should use the the atomic bomb against the Soviets before the Cold War, when the the Soviets were still our friends. And not only Um, that, Matt, he was a nut job in the sense that he went to Eisenhower and he went to... uh, to, uh, to, um, to Omar Bradley and says, you give me a week and I'll give you Moscow. At the time, he had an army of the third army, which really fought nobody. He had an army of 60,000 people, of of 60,000 guys who fought no one, right? Versus a battled, hardened military from Russia that numbered 6.1 million that just faced off the most battled, hardened, uh, you know, uh, uh, German, high-level SS regiments like you would not believe in the most toughest panzer divisions and grinded them out and this yep. moron wants to take sixty-one thousand troops who have no experience this blowhard who walks around with pistols and deactivated grenades and he wants to go do that i mean this is a, and it's his mythos that hollywood took and created the whole exceptional stand yeah it's him yeah. it's him matt i hear you i hear you I hear you, man. I feel your pain. I feel, I feel your anger, man. No, no, it's good. It's righteous <sighs> anger. Okay, okay so here, <laughs> let's let's just let me just now skip into the current uh, thrust of the story. So this sort of sets the stage of the two potentials for this multipolar alliance uh, with the ex- expression of the of a, the true uh, USA, the true idea of a of an anti imperial manifest destiny. Um, and what was happening after? I mean, when the Cold War was launched, and all of a sudden our allies became our friends, and our, our friends became our enemies. Um, I mean, our, our enemies became our allies and our allies became our enemies after World War II. Um, you had the takeover of the, the, the Brit- of British intelligence that took over much of the U.S. foreign policy, much of academia and the media. The CIA was created in 47. Um, Mossad was created as well around that same time. But you had a whole new deep state infrastructure that was built up as part of the recapturing of the world uh, by the British that never forgave the United States for what it did in 18... 18- uh, 1776, or again in 1865, by staying uh, whole. So, not all of this this momentum for progress, though, of that that was fought for by Wallace and by FDR and by others. Not a lot of this, not all of it, could be crushed. There was still Arctic development. There was still this pro-industrial, build big project orientation that wasn't easily decapitated, although the British wanted to. So, th- w- in the case of the North of here in Canada, where I live. Um, as well as in Alaska, there was an incredible increase of standards of living of the native populations, especially the Inuits. Um, they were developing skill sets, trade uh, trade um, experiences. Um, the Inuits were being, uh, they were starting to work on construction projects. They were becoming engineers. Um, so there was, there, the population was increasing in quantity and in quality, and this had to stop. This had to be destroyed because the Arctic, to the degree that that infrastructure was brought up there, the British Empire always knew that it was going to potentially rekindle the sense of common self-interest on the mutual Arctic territories 
that Molotov and Wallace were discussing. Um, how, how did they block this? And this is where it gets really racist and ugly, and it still is uh, shaping much of Canadian policy today for its native population. And this also is why people have to keep this in mind when they think of the absolute hypocrisy of Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government calling China a genocide country against its, its native minorities. Um, <clears throat> so what we did is what's called from 1953 to 58, the, um, the Northern Reallocation Project. It was a Privy Council run operation uh, overseen by the RCMP that basically uh, said your natural, it basically told these different natives that were living in a civilization in the South that had already integrated for a generation or more uh, into society. It told them, no, this is not your natural state. This is, you're out of your natural ecosystem. And what they did is they said, okay, we're going to give you financial incentives and we'll make it really easy. We're going to make a great life for you if you get on these boats and we're going to put you in these various reserve, uh, reserves that we're going to create throughout the Arctic all the way up into northern uh, uh, Nunavut. Well, today it's called Nunavut. It wasn't that, it wasn't called that then. All the way into the, the deep Arctic. And uh, then you'll be in your natural ecosystems. And they did this to hundreds of, of natives and their families. Um, here's a couple, this a couple of pictures. The, the one on the bottom is a young boy um, who later on was part of a class action lawsuit against the Canadian government, Larry uh, Odlaluk, uh, with his mom and dad um, at their new home in, home in Nunavut. And it says here, the forced relocation was very difficult for his family. His mother was constantly crying, he says, and his father died 10 months after moving. Above, that's another family that was put in another colony in Greece Ford. I forgot their names, but as you could see, these are people who they're wearing, you know, they're, they're, they're wearing Western clothing. They're, they're, they're not your typical, uh, you know, uh, pure noble savage, the way some of these British anthropologists try to portray the natives. Um, but they were put on a boat, they were, they were moved up there and they were just dropped off and left to, to literally to die. And when a Royal Commission report was put together, there was a two year Royal Commission to study the effects of what this policy did. Again, this is a five-year policy, but it continued in a different way afterwards. Um, they, they interviewed a lot of people, and one of the people they interviewed was a RCMP officer who was on duty at the time overseeing these tribes. And he, he says, this is a quote, he didn't understand why the Inuit were not given quarters at the base to live in and why the ample food which was available at the base was not made available to them. The report continued. The servicemen were told that the Inuit were there to rehabilitate themselves. That means, yeah, heal themselves for the contamination of civilization and technology, to learn how to survive on their own and go back to their old way of living. The project was to see if they could survive in that high Arctic environment where Inuit had lived in earlier times. Temperatures of negative 55 degrees Celsius were common in the winter. Um, and then during the actual trial a few years earlier by the, the it's a class actions uh, lawsuit. Um, there's a quote from the testimonials. Uh, the lawyer of the representative family said, there is overwhelming evidence to suggest that the central, if not the sole reasons for the relocation of the Inuit to the high Arctic was the desire by Canada to assert its sovereignty over Arctic islands and surrounding areas. Human flagpoles, that's what this was. It was human flagpoles. And basically there was, you know, there was no development. So it was very difficult for Canada or for the British to say to Russia or any other country sharing Arctic territory that, no, this, this land belongs to Ottawa. Well, how do you, how do you justify that? There's nobody living there. You, you have no intention to develop anything. How do you back that up? So they said, well, look, we have these people, these, these Canadians 
that are now located there. So it's ours. That was really all it was. So it was called the human flagpole uh, policy. And it was racist as hell. Uh, people did starve and die and commit suicide. Um, and this policy of telling natives that your culture is antithetical to Western colonial pro-technology culture that uses rationality. Yours is an irrational, spiritual, back-to-nature back to culture that is fundamentally incompatible. And that is the garbage that is cooked up and still taught to generations of people across the United States, across Canada, and even to the natives themselves, despite the fact that the natives living today in these territories uh, generally don't even believe it anymore. And, and we're going to get back to that. I've got a lot of quotes. Um, now, this was stopped. And this is a, an interesting uh, side lesson I wanted to just convey because the closest guy, I mean, you know, the U.S. had their 9-11. They had um, a, a deep state coup against a president that was four years long against Donald Trump um, in recent times. Canada, I, I think the close, closest analog that we have to a Donald Trump personality type was John Diefenbaker. And, um, and there's a reason for that. I think a few words have to be said about him because he's so uh, misunderstood by both by Canadians. Most Americans don't even know who he is. Uh, but what he tried to do and what he largely even did do is gives us a lot, a lot of keys into understanding how to problem solve and think through the current problem today, despite the fact that he was stupid on many other levels that led to his downfall and the failure of a lot of the great things he wanted to do. So I got three quotes from Diefenbaker um, that I'm going to read. That's a picture. That's two pictures of the guy. Um, when he came into power in 1958, he shut down this racist policy. He stopped the Northern Real Relocation Project, and he basically created, he extended the Bill of Rights to natives across Canada. That's Métis, Indigenous, and, and Inuit. They represent uh, today almost a million of the population. Um, no, more than that. Anyway, he extended the Bill of Rights. He gave them the right to, the, to vote for the first time. Um, there are a lot of other projects. And for the Arctic, what he basically said is rather than just have human uh, flagpoles, let's actually develop the technology of the Arctic and create new science cities. He spent $78 million on a, a study that was going to uh, define what's called the Northern Frontier. Um, what, what we have there is a Canadian government-funded diagram produced in 1958 of the domed nuclear city of Frobisher Bay, which would today be located in the territory of Nunavut. It was a, a city that was meant to ho house 5,000 people with their families. It was not one of these like resource extraction towns that just exist until the mines are tapped. It was not that. It had advanced scientific research. Like I said, it would had a nuclear reactor involved in uh, powering it. It had a certain domed coverage, a huge underground network with malls, amusement attractions, uh, all of the amenities of modern day Toronto, as it said. It involved also building rail networks and roads throughout the Arctic that would both open up uh, the vast amounts of resources, but also extend civilization into, those, into these zones. To, to this very day, Canada is the biggest landmass with the smallest population. We only have six cities strung around a uh, maybe a hundred kilometer distance to the U.S. border. Um, very highly uh, under underdeveloped. There's almost nothing beyond that that limited small bandwidth, um, and that's by imperial design to keep a wall separating the U.S. and Russia in, in large measure. Um, again, this all has to be kept in the mind as you think about how are we criticizing China and what is China doing 
differently for their native minority populations? How How is the policy different or how is Russia's policy different to its Inuit who have very similar characteristics to the Canadian and, and Alaskan Inuits, but they don't have the same problems because they haven't suffered the same generations of social engineering as the North American natives have suffered. So <clears throat> here to give you just a sense of his spirit and the, the vision that he was planning on bringing online, Diefenbaker um, gave a speech in 1958 saying, we intend to launch for the future. We have laid the foundations now the long range objectives of this party, which is the conservative party of his time, we ask from you a mandate, a new and a stronger mandate to pursue the planning and to carry to fruition our new national development program for Canada. This national development policy will create a new sense of national purpose and national identity. One Canada, one Canada wherein Canadians will have preserved to them the control of their own economic and political destinies. Sir John A. Macdonald gave his life to this party. He opened up the West. He saw Canada from East to West. I see a new Canada, a Canada of the North. We will assist the provinces with their cooperation in the conservation of the renewable resources. We will aid in projects which are self-liquidating. We will aid in projects which, while not self-liquidating, will lead to the de development of the national resources for the opening of Canada's North land. We will open that North land for development by improving transportation and communication and by the development of power, by the building of access roads. We will make an inventory of our hydroelectric potential. This is the message that I give to my, you, my fellow Canadians, not one of defeatism, jobs, jobs for hundreds of thousands of Canadian people, a new vision, a new hope, a new soul for Canada. And he meant it. It didn't happen, but he meant it. <laughs> um, but he, and he even had the means to think it through. Um, when it came to how are you going to fund this gigantic project? Okay, this is 1958. There's a massive recession going on around the world uh, tied to the, the blow up of a bubble located in the U.S. Uh, automobile sector. It, it was artificial. But anyway, it, there was a big contraction of capital. How are you going to get that capital to, to do this? On top of that, there's a, a, another problem where the victory bonds that people had invested in during World War II to uh, beat Hitler, those victory bonds were now maturing. So there were millions of dollars that the government had to somehow figure out how do you get, how do you create th these millions of dollars to pay back the maturing victory bonds while at the same time overcoming the problems of a recession going on that is contracted liquidity. So how do you do that? How do you get that capital to build this multi-billion dollar uh, Northern Frontier project? This would have totally transformed the native communities, by the way, and their identities would have totally been transformed if this had gone forward. But he he discovered it. He discovered it because he had loved uh, Franklin Roosevelt, he studied Roosevelt's New Deal and he studied Lincoln. He loved both of those two guys. And he studied how Lincoln funded the, the Transcontinental Railway through greenbacks. And he talks about that in his uh, autobiography. And he says, he describes here in another, in another speech um, in 1958, this is the largest financial project in our history. Offers an opportunity to all holders of victory bonds, which were purchased as an act of patriotic faith during the war years, to reinvest them for the greater development of greater Canada. These monies that were advanced during the days of war and which contributed to the victory, we now ask to be made available to speed the pace of peaceful progress and the program of national development. The action we are taking will make it possible for our nation to embark on a new era of peacetime prosperity far and beyond anything we have ever known. So what was he proposing here to do? He said, we need to take control of the Bank of Canada which was a national bank and have the 
have the citizens who own the victory bonds convert their victory bonds through a conversion loan into development bonds that would then be tied to getting everybody to have a personal investment in the growth of their nation as a whole, which is exactly how the, the, the greenbacks worked. Um, that's kind of how, uh, that is exactly how the victory bonds worked. And just because it has been done in times of war, it's never been proven why it can't work in times of peace, if not better, because you're not destroying half the capital or more that you're, you're creating by building bombs that ultimately kill the lives of workers, potential consumers, and also the product that you're building. So in peacetime, this really would have worked. The problem was, and this is a big problem, the governor of the Bank of Canada at the time was a guy named James Coyne. James Coyne was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a highly oh, placed Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. And he was highly enmeshed in the uh, the entire imperial doc, uh, program for a new world order, a one world government, and depopulation. And his policy as the governor of the Bank of Canada was a money contraction policy. So he wanted uh, tight money, kind of like the way the IMF tells Greece or other countries that when they're in a financial bind, you you commit more austerity and you, you cut the budget. You don't spend on infrastructure. So that was his view. Diefenbaker went to war with him and he fired him. That was the first and only time a, a prime minister fired um, the governor of the bank of uh, the governor of a bank of Canada. It almost never happens. It's a, it's on par with JFK firing Ellen Dulles. Now, <clears throat> JFK is also pre uh, president in the United States at this time, right? So while I said Diefenbaker likes, he loved FDR, he loved Lincoln. He also had the problem that he didn't understand JFK. He and he loved the Queen. He didn't like JFK. And he loved the monarchy and he loved this naive romantic idea of the British Empire. So on the one hand, after he fired James Coyne, James Coyne goes on to not accept the, uh, the, 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 the demand for resignation. He makes a press conference that's repeated in all of the, the mainstream press in Canada saying that Diefenbaker is persecuting the poor governor of the Bank of Canada. And James Coyne is turned into a folk hero by the press, kind of like what they did for James Comey, who was fired by Trump. Uh, in 2017, James Comey was turned into liberal media as a folk hero against the big bad fascist orange man tyrant. Um, and basically, Comey leads a new movement against Diefenbaker, which leads to, to Diefenbaker's uh, loss in, in support over over two years. This, this is a, a war being waged. And Diefenbaker ultimately falters. His, his The whole thing is run by a series of Rhodes Scholars in Canada and the Privy Council Office, including people within Diefenbaker's own cabinet. Later on, Diefenbaker thinks back about this when he writes his autobiography, and he's thinking, shit, man, I made a lot of mistakes. And he writes saying that the civil service, which is sort of the, the deep state, that's how the deep state operates, whether in the US or in Canada, he says the civil service is there to advise upon, but not to determine policy. A minister is there to see that government policy is carried out within his department. That said, had I been returned to office in 1965, there would have been some major changes made. It became obvious to me as soon as we were out of office in 1963 that there were quite a number of senior people in the public service about whom I had not known, who had simply been underground, quietly working against my government and waiting for the liberals to return to power. So Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> That's why I said. I mean, when I read this again, uh, it's like it, it just there's so many parallels to what's going on now with Trump. It's it's astounding. Um, so another guy uh, at the same time, you had JFK did get along really really well with it with another Canadian who was the Premier of British Columbia for 20 years from 1953 to 73, no 52 to 72, called uh, William Bennett W A C Bennett, and Bennett was a guy who 
largely went to war with the Ottawa, with the, the Privy Council office, with these Rhodes Scholars embedded within his own provincial cabinet, who were always trying to put sand into the gears of development. Um, he was able to overcome it by nationalizing uh, BC Hydro, by uh, doing a, by working with JFK, who gave him full U.S. backing to build water projects in the north called the Peace River uh, Water Hydroelectric Projects, which were part of a, a broader continental water program that would have involved building, moving uh, a lot of excess water, unused water runoff from the north of Canada and, and Alaska into the continent, down into uh, California, Texas, called the North American Water and Power Alliance, which JFK, as well as Bobby Kennedy, were in support of. Bennett was in support of this. And, and even some of those projects, as part of that design, happened under Bennett's lead. Um, <clears throat> so this was done. And uh, today, for example, the forest fires and everything else would not be happening in California if Nawapa was not sabotaged um, when it was sabotaged. So that's another thing to think about. And I gave a presentation on that that people could see on, on my uh, the Canadian Patriot YouTube channel. So what we have there are two images of what Bennett did for rail development. And Bennett wanted to open up the north and connect rail into Alaska and beyond. He, uh, he went very far. And what you see on the left side is the image of what was done. Again, always with a fight. It was never done without a giant fight to build all the way to Deese Lake. Um, his, his grand design involved what you see on the right-hand side, a connection into Alaska uh, through the Yukon. That would have opened up completely new corridors of development like we, we've never seen. Uh, this was also sabotaged. How was it sabotaged? Well, in 1968, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau brings in systems analysis and cybernetics with the Club of Rome into Canada. So uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau becomes the prime minister um, with this liberal party takeover. You know, like uh, Diefenbaker's ousted in a coup d'etat in 1963. JFK is killed a little bit before that in 1963 under its own coup. Like, let's just get that straight. What happened in the U.S. was a coup. Um, <clears throat> and the new policy became increasingly, don't develop the continent. Apply ecosystems management to create these artificial blockades saying that nature is pure, pristine, and must never be touched by human technology because that's always a bad thing, obviously. That can be a bad thing if you do it stupidly or you just want to extract a resource for money without any sense of real development. Yeah, you could do a lot of damage. However, does that make it intrinsically bad? Hell no. They wanted to, but they wanted to create a logic saying that any time that human beings apply technology and science to change the na nature, whether it's greening a desert or building a, 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 a you know, liquid natural gas pipeline or a rail, it's always bad. It's always unnatural. The human mind is what they were saying was unnatural. So purely at Trudeau, when he came to power, he, the first thing he did is he started creating nature protected lands that were undevelopable by law on the, on the West Coast around British Columbia, specifically targeting all of the zones where Bennett and Diefenbaker had planned to build rail and water uh, diversion projects. As a quick addition here, one of the key guys who was in charge of destroying these projects was General McNaughton. Uh, General McNaughton is a genocidal war, he call, he's called a war hero. He actually used Canadians as, as cannon fire in the Battle of Dieppe in World War II that just killed tens of thousands of Canadians, sending them into machine gun fire, knowing that that was going to happen as part of a prolongation of the war. And uh, <clears throat> the, the guy was ordered as the, uh, the Knight of the Order of Bath. Um, for services rendered. Now, the key per, he was the key guy who was set up to, to chair the International Joint Commission that was, um, you know, the, the, the thing created to organize 
interboundary water uh, for Canada and the USA in the early 1900s. Now, as the head of this thing, his job was to destroy uh, the NAWAPA project, the North American Water and Power Alliance. The key guy, his key lawyer, who worked with him to justify why interboundary inter, uh, water should never, water transfers should never occur, was a guy named Major General Louis Mortimer Bloomfield. For those who don't know, Bloomfield was the guy who, <laughs> he worked originally for the OSS. He was a Montreal-based uh, pervert who was part of uh, MI6. And he set up what was called Permindex, the Permanent Industrial Exposition. This is the organization that was caught red-headed trying to orchestrate the assassinations of Charles de Gaulle, Enrico Mattei, several other statesmen, and also John F. Kennedy. This is the thing that ran John F. Kennedy's assassination from Montreal, Canada. Um, this is the same guy who was the key lawyer on why, you know, blocking Nawapa. So just to say, just to say, this is all connected. Um, <clears throat> so the human flagpole uh, policy is now uh, modified to both tell the native communities that you are intrinsically, to basically try to brainwash them, to, to, convince, to be convinced that they are intrinsically anti-technology um, so, so that they could be used as a buffer for development while at the same time extending all, um, you know, basically uh, protected land rights to zones that the empire really didn't really care about the, the land. They didn't care about protecting land, whether in North America or whether in Africa, where you look at all of these like World Wildlife Fund protected reserves in Africa, the majority of them house terrorists like Boko Haram and, and other uh, terrorist groups. And they're usually located on borders in Africa, which uh, facilitates controlled genocides and chaos operations, which has been the policy going back to the days of, of Rhodes and Milner. So all that to say, the empire who's orchestrating these things doesn't care about nature. Um, <clears throat> increasingly, with you know, with this policy, with Pierre Elliott Trudeau doing this, you have, it's 1968, 69, 70, 71, you have the, the destruction of the fixed exchange rate gold reserve system, the, the unleashing of a post-industrial model, a consumer society model, and all of a sudden, you can see from this graph here, uh, from 1970 onward, you have an acceleration of decay. What we used to have is 40% of the, the workforce wor working in industry, manufacturing, all of a sudden starts sliding faster and faster, while services, the service sector, increases uh, exponentially to the point that today we're at a situation where less than 20% work in anything productive. I think far less than 20% because the, even the very definition of productivity has been like really weakened. And uh, uh, the, the, most people working in the economy right now don't have a clue what real value is, which is why you get things like derivatives, you know, deregulation happened that allowed for derivatives and these bubbles to be created in the next, you know, 40 year period, which are now today a, a ticking time bomb waiting to blow. So if you look at it, what, what are the consequences to this policy for natives, for especially for Inuits? You have suicide rates among Canadian natives is three times higher than the national average today, with five times more Indigenous women committing suicide than women of other non-native groups, and 11 times more suicides in Inuit populations than in other groups in Canada. 11 times more. Natives living on reserves are 2.4 times more likely to commit suicide than those natives living off reserves. Native communities only represent 2.6% of the total population and yet account for over 11% of all opioid deaths. Huge disparity. Infant mortality among natives is three times higher than the national average. Native life expectancy is over 10 years shorter. And 47% of native children live in poverty with that number increasing across every province and territory. 
just quick stats, right? There's more in terms of abuse and other things, but I just got that across to get across just how sick the policy is. Now, there are some residual projects that could begin to change this in positive ways. I, I named four of the biggest ones currently on the table that are shovel ready, in some cases have made some progress. You have the Alaska Canada Railway that Donald Trump endorsed uh, to build a rail project finally from Alaska, uh, Alberta through Yukon to Alaska that would create 18,000 jobs. It would be a, a $12 billion project. No, $18 billion project, US. You have the Keystone XL pipeline, which was just canceled by uh, President Biden that would have created 18,000 uh, jobs immediately, many of them native populations, high paying, high quality jobs moving oil down to uh, Nebraska. Uh, actually, uh, yeah. Then you have, <clears throat> actually it was, it was liquid gas. Then you have the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is on the upper right-hand side, moving uh, Albertan oil into ports in Vancouver, which would be, op would be sending uh, a lot of this oil and natural gas to the Asian markets as a primary uh, purchaser. Um, that might be canceled. We don't even know at any moment, frankly. Um, and then another one, which is highly being sabotaged right now, is the uh, Coastal LNG link, which is a, uh, <clears throat> it involves also employment for like 12,000 people. A lot of them are natives. Um, and then there's tertiary and, and uh, secondary and tertiary employments as well. It, it's not just the immediate jobs building this thing that you have to think about. It's all of the other secondary and tertiary jobs um, servicing the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's dynamic. So <clears throat> we're told that natives are against this. I mean, that a lot of people in Montreal and Toronto and a lot of the in in New York and in the, you know a lot of the the uh, the fluffy comfortable zones of North America are told that this is uh these are o big oil projects out to uh destroy and impose eco-colonialism onto natives um now when you actually look at these projects especially the coastal LNG link uh program which goes through primarily uh 20 different native band uh zones you actually have a lot of support. People living in these reserves don't have the same delusions as comfortable people um, living in the city centers who I, are just so detached from reality on the ground. So I got three quotes that I just love. Uh, one of them is the chief counselor to the Heisla Nation uh, tribe, which is one of the tribes that would be benefiting immensely from the coastal LNG, who said First Nations have been left out of resource development for too long. But in this project, we are involved. We have been consulted and we will ensure that there are benefits to, for all First Nations. I am tired of managing poverty. I'm tired of First Nations communities dealing with issues such as suicide, low unemployment, uh, or educational opportunities. If this opportunity is lost, it doesn't come back. Uh, two other quotes that I like. One is uh, First Nations counselor Karen Ogan Toes, co-creator of the First Nations LNG Alliance. If our, if our people are living in poverty, then the way to overcome it is through proper training, trades, education, and jobs. My conscience is clear. And then this other great one from a Wet'suwet'en youth leader. The Wet'suwet'en tribes were the tribes that were uh, used to justify these mass protests uh, last year all across Canada, shutting down rail, transit, blocking highways, um, really, really bad. Most of it was, I'd say 95% were mostly white sociology students from the cities, from the universities being deployed by radical anarchist uh, ideologue teachers who are of no connection whatsoever um, 
to the actual tribes. And a few natives were used as front people to sort of make it see, to put on a native face, but it really was not indigenous to the natives as a movement. But this young guy, Troy, says, if the environmentalists are successful, it will be one of the biggest cultural appropriations in British Columbia's history. So yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, one of the key guys, this is the last quote. <clears throat> I, picked, I could have picked a lot more quotes, but I, I just love this one. He's a member of the Legislative Assembly, a native himself, Ellis Ross, who said, many of those lining up against the coastal gasoline pipeline are non-Aboriginal, while some are even from south of the border. Foreign influence is nothing new, but what we are seeing today is a well-executed campaign financed by the likes of Soros's Tides Foundation and the U.S.-based Rockefeller Foundation. And he just calls it out. Um, yep. This guy's pretty strong. Take, take a look back now, review what China has actually done with its uh, Uyghur population. And keep in mind, we, the Uyghurs represent just one of eight different uh, Muslim minority groups. So the fact that Canada and the Netherlands and the U.S. and the National Endowment for Democracy have bleeding hearts over the Uyghurs um, and not all of these other ethnic uh, Muslim groups um, has everything to do with geopolitics. It's not really about caring about them. Now, it has everything to do with this map regarding the Belt and Road Initiative. And if you look at um, the northwest of, of China, where you have um, Xinjiang, the biggest province, this is where you have the Southern Silk Road connection going in through, um, I mean, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Pakistan Economic Corridor is right below that in South Xinjiang. You have Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and then through these zones, we see directly that this rail corridor uh, goes through Iran, through uh, Turkey, but those branch off points into Iraq, into Syria, into Lebanon, down uh, even deeper into Africa, through Egypt. Um, these are all, th this is 11,000 kilometers of distance of motion of goods, of services, of other things, passenger, passenger rail to, um, that connects east to west and creates a, a different type of model of economic development, which the empire controlling the west doesn't want anybody to know about or to do. The cultural policy, which also involves, I mean, I didn't, this isn't on this map, but Russia is playing a key role in this. And uh, this, the, the polar silk road that I mentioned, this is a, an image of the maritime component, but the land-based component of rail and roads are also extending up. Um, <clears throat> currently, if you look at what is being intended through, by, by, by building the, uh, the northern route uh, for, for transit of, of freight goods, this cuts off 10 days of travel time from goods from China to Europe. Uh, it allows you to bypass the over-congested Straits of Malacca and the Straits of Suez. Um, Russia currently, and this is a, an offer by Russia to build the Bering Strait Rail Connection that they revived in 2011. They offered to pay $60 billion towards building this project. So this is already ongoing for a while. China co-endorsed this as well. It's there as an olive branch if we chose to accept it. Um, quick facts about the Polar Silk Road, okay? So we have the upgrading of global transportation corridors involving the, the Northern Sea Route. That's what you saw as an image. You have the Northern Latitudinal Railway connecting Western Siberian ports on the Arctic Ocean um, with rail. You have a boost of freight traffic by fourfold by 2025 from 20 million tons today. It would be up to 80 million tons. Um, that's huge, huge, massive increase. Uh, the creation of new nuclear-powered icebreakers. Canada has zero. The U.S. has cut two derelict ones. I mean, they're, Russia and China are streaming ahead. You have vast programs for resource development. Uh, the China Arctic uh, Research Center as a scientific collaborative center. This ties into the Russia-China space programs to co-develop a lunar base as well. You have uh, the Chinese port of Dalian to Rotterdam. 
Um, I already mentioned that, cut by 10 days. And the Yamal LNG pipeline, the Power of Siberia, a uh, 3,000 3, mile pipeline to China, it's almost done. There's gonna be a second building of this thing. Uh, it's gonna, an expansion of this. Um, when this is all done, Russia already is the number one supplier of energy. It's gonna be far beyond anything the rest of the world is doing. Um, China was originally being courted by Canada uh, to become addicted to the honeypot of cheap resources in Canada throughout the days of Stephen Harper, 2009, 10, 11, 12. And when they realized what Canada was in, in, as a geopolitical British chess piece in this big thing, they decided not to get addicted to Canadian oil that could be turned off as soon as they, they were addicted and enmeshed at the will of the oligarchy. And they chose instead to start investing with the, the bond of survival of Russia, intelligently so, because until Canada can begin to act like a sovereign nation the way it was under John Diefenbaker, it's not trustworthy currently, sadly. Um, and last slide here, the last image I have on Xinjiang, just to compare with what we just went through with the Canadian natives and the destruction of the Canadian natives over the past 75 years. Xinjiang, GDP, just to read this quickly, okay? Increased by 100-fold between 1978 and 2020. 20% 20 school enro enrollment of children in Xinjiang in 1949 has risen to 99.9% .9 today. Oh. In 19 yeah, yeah, God forbid. God. Such brainwashing. Um, 1949, you had 30 years average life expectancy in Xinjiang. Today, it's up to 72 years. Um, you got projects. Those evil Chinese. Yeah, contributing to overpopulation. Oh, commie bastards. Yeah. And so they're, they're talking about genocide of Xinjiang of Uyghurs. The Uyghur population has, ex has ex increased Prosper. immensely, immensely in 30 years. They've prospered and increased quality and quantity. Uh, China's one-child policy that they had for the, its all, whole population from 1979 to 2014, it never applied that to the Uyghurs, the Muslim population. They never had those limits. They could have as many kids as they wanted. Uh, South yeah, people China, don't realize the one-China policy only affects the Han, native Han Chinese. That's it. Exactly. If you're a Buddhist, if you're Christian, and there are Christians, and I'm going to say something about that, um, you, you, you never had to abide by that. Even, and, and so th there's de-desertification projects. They're, they're extending economic development. Um, training, trade schools, they're, they've increased it from 15% forest coverage where there's a lot of desert to 23.5% in only 20 years. This has increased evapotranspiration because all of a sudden plants breathe, forests breathe, there's increased cloud coverage and overall general cooling. So if you really care about global warming, you green deserts. You don't go for green energy grids uh, or solar panels. That only increases deserts that makes things warmer. You have the Terra Water uh, Basin Water Project that's revived these lost uh, basins that are needed for the next generations of, of agriculture. You have roads and rail that have, for the first time, connected all of the villages in Xinjiang. Xinjiang is huge. It's, it represents the size of something like 12 European countries. It's huge. Correct. It's, um, it's, it's a monster. It's, it's huge. It's like yeah. taking uh, Alaska and, and Texas and slamming it together almost. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculously big to think about. Um, Lang, you have the uh, Lanshu Rum, Rumqui high-speed rail, which is now being finalized. Um, it's going to be running parallel to the electrified Langshan passenger rail. And when this is completely done, the, the, the Langshan passenger rail is going to be turned into a freight rail, and that'll be part of the uh, the, the whole uh, Eurasian continental land bridge. You have the Rumquian Hotan railway, which is going to play a loop around the uh, Taklamakan desert. Uh, there's the 600-kilometer uh, Kashgar Osh Railway from China to Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan. Um, this is going to. This is a zone of radical Wahhabism that has grew since the 1990s, funded by the Saudis, where these 
groups, largely a lot, many of them Uyghur, were then deployed into Iraq, into Syria to conduct jihad against the governments there, and also back into creating an eastern Tur Turkmenistan of China, which they call Xinjiang East, East Turkmenistan, um, which has been at the heart of the hundreds of terrorist operations for 25 plus years in China that China's had to deal with by not bombing another country or droning people, but rather by creating trade schools. And if you want to, if you're a Muslim and you want to study in a, in a mosque, it's very easy in Xinjiang. There's 24,000 mosques in Xinjiang. It's the highest density of mosques, I think, anywhere in the world per capita uh, from for the Muslim population. There's another 280 churches for Orthodox, Christian, Protestants, uh, and Catholics. What? I thought the church was being slaughtered like lambs in China. Yeah, I thought yeah. they were being thrown in concentration camps with the Uyghurs. I know. No, it's it's crazy how much. The, and if you look at the reason why these the, these bullshit stats are are being um, supported, but I read it in Epoch Times. Exactly. So who's funding Epoch Times? Falun Gong. Who's Falun Gong? CIA. Why, why exactly. And what is what is the uh, World Uyghur Congress, which is running a lot of these statistics too? This is also uh, funded by the National Endowment for Demo Democracy, which Max it's also another great, alphabet at, exactly. Uh, yeah, Blumenthal did a great expose on this. So, um, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff, it's all psyops. It's not real. And China and I, I, Russia I'm just waiting for them to set up a school of Americas uh, right outside of the border of uh, Myanmar, man. That's gonna be oh, the man, they thing. want to. That's, that's, they're <laughs> drooling over it. So it's, it's uh, more freedom. Yeah. So that's it. That's, that's, that's the way you do uh, a real cultural policy. If you really care about your, your minority groups, you do it that way, the way China yeah, and Russia are doing it. You don't do it the way these racists running the British Empire are doing it. And uh, you're going to get better results.